who is Jesus? Um, I feel like that's a, probably a pretty good thing, right, as a Christian ministry to try to figure out who Jesus is. And we think by looking at one of his best friends, um, that will probably give us a pretty good window into the type of man, um, type of savior that Jesus is for us. And so last week we were uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Peter's despair, um, as Jesus turned out to be not what he expected. Tonight we're going to be looking a few verses later in Mark 14, beginning in verse 66 at Peter's denial. So without further ado, this is the word of the Lord. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you that you meet us here tonight, not because we um, are awesome, not because we have it together tonight, but because you have promised in your faithfulness to meet with your people. And thank you that you have given us the Bible, that you've preserved it throughout the ages, that it can be trustworthy and true, and that an ordinary guy like myself can open it tonight and share um, the word of the Lord with these students. And so I, I just pray, I pray that you would speak through a very broken man like myself, that you give these students ears to hear you, hearts to believe you, eyes to behold you, that Jesus Christ, you'd be high and lifted up. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room right now. Um, Saturday was the worst. Absolutely the worst. I mean, um, I know a ton of y'all were, were in East Lansing for the game, uh, right? Others of y'all are, are from Michigan, and I can't imagine just, like, everybody blowing you up. Um, maybe, maybe not. And I have to think, like, even if you don't care about football, Saturday must have just been, like, a really depressing day around campus. <laughs> like, people maybe just walk around um, in, like, weird Halloween costumes, but, like, sad about it. <laughs> like, that's just kind of a weird thing. And I found myself after the game, and, like, I didn't go to Michigan, but I just found myself after the game scrolling Twitter just to, like, surely that didn't just happen, right? Like, someone's going to come in at the last moment and go, yeah, the refs were actually terrible, and, like, they're going to reverse the game somehow. Surely there was some other chance for Michigan to come back, right? Like, surely this wasn't it, right? Y'all, it was, like, embarrassing. I probably sat there for 20 minutes. <laughs> Catherine's like, are you okay? No. I'm fine. Right? Like, it, it took an embarrassing long amount to get out of the chair and just accept what had happened. And my immediate response was, was to, like, maybe condemn that feeling of disappointment. Like, why do I care so much about football? I didn't even go here. This is so dumb. You're so dumb. I... 
Maybe for you, it wasn't to like condemn yourself, but to prop yourself up. Well, at least, you know, I go to Michigan. I'm not like those dummies that go to Michigan State. 72% acceptance rate. <laughs> right, like my point is, your response to the missed expectation and letdown of Saturday reveals something actually about who you are as a human being. Which is this, when dealt with the gut punch, the gut punch of despair, you do whatever you can to deny its reality. Condemn it away, prop yourself up enough to make it not a big deal. Maybe put your head in the sand and just like forget about it. Get yourself busy again. And what I want you to see is that Peter in our text tonight is again no different than you and me. This is the famous passage if you've grown up in the church. Maybe you don't know anything about Christianity, but I feel like this is so often um, something we see uh, around Easter time. It pops up. uh, Jesus being denied three times by his best friend, Peter. Uh, The same Jesus who predicted that this would happen only a few chapters earlier. And just like last week's scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, each gospel writer found this moment noteworthy enough to record it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all believe that these six verses are absolutely vital. They're absolutely vital for us to best understand Peter's relationship with Jesus. Also for us to understand our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with Jesus. And so this leads me to my two points for tonight, which is the denial game and redemptive reality. Really creative points. Um, The denial game and redemptive reality. So... First, like, what do I mean by the denial game? Uh, Read with me again verses 66 and 67. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And so I want to zero in specifically on that word also. Uh, it's not like a fancy word, right? We say it all the time. John's account actually fleshes out more of what Mark is getting at in these verses. We read in John's account that John went with Peter to the high priest's house. How do we know that? Well, right, like in other words, Peter's not alone. And we know that because in verses 66 and 67, if you reread them, right, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Uh, the, sim- the syntax of this seems to imply... And tradition actually confirms that John was able to go straight into the courtyard because he was known by the girl at the door. It's almost like John walks in and she's like a bouncer or something. Like, whoa, whoa, you also were with Jesus. She didn't bat an eye that John was there, even if he was a follower of Jesus. And that's because John's dad was kind of a big deal. Archaeology has actually confirmed a fish market in Jerusalem specifically designated to Zebedee, John's father, John the son of Zebedee. So it's, it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility at all. It's actually very logical and, and realistic that John would encounter this girl as he accompanied, as he accompanied his father to the high, highly trafficked fish, mar- fish market. And, and John, right, like, this is so uh, typical of John, if, if you read his, his gospel. At the end of his gospel, he actually says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you would find life. And John is so concerned to give you an eyewitness account that he will include these little details. And one of those little details that he includes 
um, that Mark and Luke and Matthew leave off is that the servant of the high priest whose ear is cut off by Peter in the garden, his name is actually Malchus. John includes that his name is Malchus. But this sermon isn't about John or his attention to detail. What I want you to glean from all this detail is that John is there. John's there with Peter. Peter is not somehow like sulking in the shadows. It's easy to read this account and think Peter's despair has, has like led him into isolation. That somehow, you know, he's George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And he's contemplating like his whole life before him alone in a bar or something. At least maybe that's how I read uh, this account. Because it, it seems to zero in on Peter, doesn't it? And don't get me wrong, right? Like, of course, of course, Peter feels the gut punch of despair. That feeling that you and me are all too familiar with. But he hasn't run away. He's there with John in a very public courtyard. Both are known as followers of Jesus. This isn't his attempt to, like, try and cover up or hide. To hide who he is as the rock and, like, what he's been doing the past three years. Like, he, he can't just erase that. And even from, again, a logical, like, common sense perspective, the idea that he's trying to, to wallow away in his despair doesn't actually, like, make sense. Here you have Peter the Rock, very often the spokesperson for the Twelve. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, Peter's mic drop, right, when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, Peter had to have been somewhat low-key famous. Remember, like, the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds that gather in around Jesus, all these miracles that Jesus is doing, these things that Jesus is teaching. Peter, Peter was there every time. People had to have taken notice of Jesus' cronies. And, and isn't that how our world works today, right? I mean, like, any kind of tabloid you read, like athletes, celebrities, politicians, not just what they're doing and right it's so often who they're dating who are their friends who they hang out with i think sometimes we believe like the internet and social media has like somehow invented the idea that like we're gonna be really nosy about people's lives and we want you know figure out what they're doing at all times like that's been true since the dawn of time right and so so if you accept this reality that like maybe peter's not really sulking the shadows that verses 66 and 67 show Peter out in the open as a known follower of Jesus. Then what, like, why the vehement denial? Not once, but three times. Like, who's, who's Peter trying to dupe right now? I think verses 69 and 71 through 71 give us a little bit of a clue. I'm going to reread them one more time for us. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. To use the illustration again, how many of y'all went to the game Saturday and know exactly how Peter's feeling right now? Like, again, I know I mentioned the, dispar- the, the, the despair part, but how, how many of y'all know what that walk of shame feels like? 
His team just lost when they weren't supposed to. He's wearing the maize and blue of a Galilean accent. And because of his public identifi- uh, identification with the team Jesus, people are drawing attention to the fact that this team he's been on for years has finally lost. Time has run out on the mission. Game is over. Clock is at zero. Like, is this not the walk of shame coming out of the stadium in East Lansing? When your only option is to put your head down and like pretend for a second that you, you don't go to Michigan? Peter denies and denies again anything to keep him from facing the reality that everything is over. Everything is over. Until finally, verse 70, we see one of the bystanders seemingly walk up to him and point out the obvious. (laughs) Certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. Your accent is Galilean. Right? Translation... Dude, where, like, what are you doing? Why are you denying this? Like, your accent is giving you away so very clearly. Uh, which to us may not be, like, as obvious. Like, I've been told by some of y'all uh, that I have a southern accent. Uh, which is funny to me because it makes me wonder if you've actually ever met someone from Mississippi or Alabama. Um, Eleanor's in the room, so there you go. <laughs> She's from Mississippi. Um, but, right, like, with some of my friends... You don't have to go, like, looking for language nuance. Have y'all taken that New York Times, like, regional dialect quiz? Yeah, there you go. Um, Right? You don't have to go looking for language nuances or read into words. Like, it's just there. You meet someone when they walk in the room and you're like, whoa, we are definitely from different places of the country. And the same was true here. Um, In the Jewish tradition, the Talmud actually speaks of like the distinctive, very thick draw uh, that people have from the region of Galilee. Peter's accent here is as clear to these people as someone wearing a maize and blue Blake Corum jersey is. Just very obvious. All you got to do is hear it, see it, behold it. It's obvious. And so this leads me back to the question, what is the game that Peter is playing? Who is he trying to dupe? It it honestly seems pretty foolish. It seems silly. I think if you look at verse 71, we see two emotions come out of Peter uh, in particular. One, I think we see fear in Peter. According to Jewish custom at the time, it was illegal to carry around a sword on a feast day. Kind of reminds me like... (laughs) I lived in the South, uh, it was like illegal to buy alcohol on Sunday. It was just one of those things, right? You can't carry a sword on a feast day. And so when Jesus is portrayed and and Peter stands up to slash at the servant's ear, uh, he's breaking the law. Not, Not because he's like trying to kill someone, but because he's carrying a sword. And John's account writes that one of the relatives of the servant recognizes Peter in this moment. And he asks, didn't I see you with him in the garden? It's the feeling of of being caught red-handed and the fear of whatever consequences lie ahead. Will I I be arrested? Will this relative somehow like retaliate and slash a sword at me? Peter is panic-stricken. I do not know the man of whom you speak. But I think too, and, and more importantly, beneath the superficial emotion of fear... I think we see the depth of Peter's despair. Soren Kierkegaard um, 
calls despair, this is what he calls it. He says, despair is sickness unto death. Sickness unto death. Um, Michael Card, who I've quoted a lot in these sermons, he's the author of uh, The Emotional Life of Simon Peter. This is what he writes about Peter in this moment. He says, Peter's Messiah would have slaves washing his feet, not the other way around. His Messiah would command the legions of angels to destroy his enemies. His Messiah would have drawn his own sword as well. Peter understood a king who would take up arms to kill his enemies. Never in his wildest dreams could he imagine a king who would die to save his enemies. End quote. But don't take Michael's, Michael Card's word for it. Like, th- listen, to, listen to Luke, the gospel writer. In, in his gospel, he writes, after Peter sees the empty tomb, that Peter walked away, quote, wondering what had happened, end quote. I think we see in this moment, like, the despair that envelops Peter's heart is steep. It's wham, it just comes on in an instant. And it's a steep despair. And think about, like, just think about for a moment everything we've seen out of Peter this semester. Those of y'all who have been with us, uh, if you haven't, I'm just going to kind of take you through a run through real quick of, of the, the Peter, the man that we've gotten to know this semester. Right? He's the first to speak his mind with Jesus. He passionately does this, like, without thinking. He's the excited puppy dog who, who feels things at a deep level. He easily goes all in with everything Jesus promises. And he's the first to oftentimes drink the Kool-Aid that Jesus is thrown out there. And he does it more than anyone. And, and so it's no surprise, I think knowing what we know about Peter, it's no surprise that after everything that has happened, the crazy night of missed expectations that he has had, because this is all one night. I mean, Passover meal, betrayal of Jesus, or Garden of Gethsemane, betrayal of Jesus, and then he's led into the high court. The crazy night of missed expectations. Bam, bam, bam. It's no surprise that this is, this is, he's also one of the most deeply felt, he's the one to most deeply feel the despair of what happens to Jesus, of anybody. And so th- this is why in verse 71, he can invoke a curse on himself and swear I do not know the man of whom you speak. Because he, he doesn't know him. He doesn't know this Jesus. He thought he knew him. But everything he thought proved wrong. He can truthfully say that he, he doesn't know this man. I don't, think, I don't think Peter's denying Jesus because he's like ashamed of Jesus right now. Or I think he... I think he flat out invokes a curse on himself, which is a big deal. He says, I don't know this man because he genuinely in that moment does not believe he knows Jesus. I know we looked at despair last week in depth, but the question I want to ask of us tonight, how many of you deny the reality of Jesus and the coming of his promised kingdom because everything you thought God should do for you or for the world is actually proved untrue. Despairing thoughts run through your head like, why does God not help me? Why doesn't God change me? 
my anxiety has only gotten worse over time. Does God not see that? Or how about this one? Why does, why does God not care about women? Why does he continue to let abuse take place? It feels like my pain and the injustice in the world is continually unseen and unmet. Here's what I think. I think many, if, if not all of us, have a despairing thought of some ilk that we've brought in here tonight. We might not be able to put a finger on it. You might be looking at me like, oh my gosh, he's trying to make me feel something I don't feel. You might not be able to put a finger on it, right? You, you may, you may not. But if we're like Peter, so often how we're feeling shows up in our life through our denial, through what we're denying. Our denial that God in the person of Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. That he really does move toward us and promise to change us. That he really does have a heart for justice and sees the cry of the brokenhearted. Our denial of his presence and power at this point is so caked into how we think about our lives that even showing up to something like large group is stripped of its weightiness because at this point, you know, it's just something that you do. It's just something, it's Wednesday night, I go to large group. Deny your, uh, deny your despair long enough And you might even fool yourself about how you're actually feeling about the person of Jesus. And this is true whether you are a Christian or not tonight. We're all guilty of denying the reality of how we might be feeling. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're fine. I believe I'm a Christian. The Bible's true. Just give me the right answer, Robert. Give me the Sunday school thing. I'm going to walk out here. I'm going to regurgitate and rehearse it. If I repeat it enough, then somehow, you know, I'll, I'll believe it. When in reality, friends, you're filled with the despairing mis-expectations that Peter was. I, I'm filled with those despairing expectations. And so, like, what's my takeaway at this point? Just, just be honest about how you're feeling. Let down. Stop denying. Now, the best news is that in the hardened skeleton of your denial, when you don't know how to be honest with yourself or with others or with God about your despair, this, this, at that moment, this is when Jesus does something remarkable. You, like, you don't need just another space to be free to express, express your feelings. That's not what Aryaf is. You need someone to peer inside you and give you freedom despite your feelings. And so with that said, let me look at my last point, which is redemptive reality. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. There's a small little detail that Luke adds to his account that Mark leaves out here. It's after the rooster crows a second time that Luke adds, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then it's after the Lord looks at Peter that Peter remembers what Jesus had said. Peter's gaze, or Jesus' gaze triggers Peter to remember Jesus' words. The Greek word Luke uses for looked 
is uh, Mblepo. <laughs> I, I can read it. I can't really speak it. Um, Mblepo. Mblepo. Whatever. Take my word for it. Um, it's the same word Jesus uses when he tells the disciples to consider the lilies of the field. Think of this word communicating the idea of seeing with your mind, complete understanding, and blepo. In this sense, Luke's small little detail is meant to communicate more of an idea that the Lord turned with a look and saw all of Peter. Jesus externally affirmed with a look all of what Peter was internally feeling deep down. Jesus said with a look, Peter... You matter. I see your despair. I know your pain. Peter's expecting disdain, condemnation. But, but that's, that's not Jesus' way with his best friend. After all, Jesus in a matter of hours is going to be condemned before the Father for Peter. That's true. How, how could Jesus somehow condemn Peter now in this moment? And the, and the difference, I mentioned this in week one. I don't know if, if y'all remember this, but the difference between the look that Jesus gives Peter the first time around when he first meets Peter, it's the same Greek word. The difference between that look and the look he gives Peter right now in this instance is the difference between Jesus seeing the rock that Peter would become. And, and from Peter's end of things, right, even though this look pierced him, and he felt known and loved in a way that he never had in his entire life, Jesus gave him an identity. Right? From Peter's end of things, that, that, first, that first time around, he kind of believed more or less that he was somewhat up to the task. Yeah, Jesus, you tell me who I am. We're good. I'm good. We're all good. In this moment, Jesus sees a different Peter. Yes, he had become the rock. He confessed Jesus to be the Christ. But now Jesus sees a a, a Peter at his worst. He sees Peter the traitor. He sees Peter who couldn't even stay up one hour and pray with him. He sees Peter in all of his despair. Did you see how Peter responded to being known by Jesus in the pit of his despair? He broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. You have to imagine it's, it's one thing to feel despair and then to foolishly play the denial game like I did Saturday that maybe many of y'all did on Saturday and might still be doing. <laughs> This creates a narrative that says, I'm hurt, but nobody cares. Nobody sees me. There's nothing I can do to escape the pit of this despair. Again, maybe that's your narrative tonight. It doesn't even have to be something silly like football. But it's another thing entirely to have someone else see see through your denial and peer straight into your deepest heartbreak. Do you know what kind of narrative that creates in you? Do you know what kind of like narrative you begin to live out of? You begin to live out of a narrative that says, even my deepest pain is known. My darkest self is cherished. There is no hiding from this kind of love. I mean, 
If you're Peter, how else, how else do you respond from this case from Jesus? I feel like if I were Mark, I would want the text to read, it broke him. It broke the denial game. His insides flooded with a humanity that he never thought possible. So here's my hot take for tonight, friends, is I think many of you know the gaze of Jesus. I think it's why you're here tonight. You love him. But I think it's the kind of gaze that Peter first encountered in John 1. A gaze that knows you and loves you before you've somehow royally screwed up. How many of you know this Jesus? The Jesus that softly and tenderly looks upon the pain of your heart with all its addictions, self-condemnation, and confusion. And he has nothing for you other than understanding and forgiveness. He has a look that pleads with you to come to him because you labor and you are heavy laden and he wants to give you rest. Peter broke down and wept. Like the power of grace literally, physically did something to him. You could say it flipped his world upside down. And so it's no wonder, I look forward to to preaching on this next week, it's no wonder that in John 21, as he sees the resurrected Jesus for the first time, making breakfast for him on the beach, that he jumps into the water, fully clothed, and swims as fast as he can to be with Jesus, to be near him, to be next to him. Because there's nowhere else he wanted to be. Peter experienced the rest of Jesus. Do you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to be at rest. We long to have someone see the depths of our despair, the parts of ourselves that we are unable to see. We long for someone to love us in that sort of way. And forgive us that so often we look to everything else, everything else that the world has to offer except for you. We look to boyfriends and girlfriends. We look to football. We look to grades. We look to anything. And Lord, we ask that you would meet us very simply tonight with a gaze, supernatural gaze of faith, where we get to see you as you are, that you are a savior for sinners. You are not a savior for put-together Michigan students. You're a savior for hot mess, broken people like me, like us. And so would our youth be a space, a place where we would not have to pretend to have it all together because we are so confident that you meet us and you give us a sense of being enough that we could never find ourselves. And would that give us a confidence to actually move toward people who we think are weird? That actually give us a confidence to, to love ourselves because we know you look upon us with such fondness. Think of Zephaniah 3.16, that the Father, because of the Son, sings praises over his people. Would your people here tonight hear the praises that you sing over them? It's in your name we pray. Amen.